I looked at my, I just kind of had a come to Jesus moment where I looked at the looked in the mirror. I'm like, this is fun. Baseball's fun. Why am I treating this game like anything other than a game? Welcome into another episode of Baseball America's interview series from Phenom to the Farm, where we are talking to former professional baseball players about their journey through amateur baseball and the minor leagues. I'm your host, Kyle Banduho. Today's guest might not need much of an introduction, which is kind of a, a strange thing to say for a guy who has eight big league games under his belt. Cody Decker was a 22nd round senior sign out of UCLA in 2009, then spent the next 11 years being one of the most notable players in minor league baseball. Part of that was due to his propensity for offensive production. He was a very productive home run hitter in the minors, but a lot of it was his personality. Cody was a guy who really embraced the fun of minor league baseball, even while dealing with some pretty challenging situations regarding his career. And he was able to translate a lot of that and show the fun life of baseball in his YouTube channel and now his daily radio show and podcast. Not going to spoil anything because Cody's story is best told via Cody himself. I was I was thrilled to have him on. I've always admired how much joy he took in the game and how much he, you know, he let fans in on that. And I'm really glad he took the time to tell his story. If you enjoyed this episode, go ahead, subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And if you are on Apple Podcasts, please rate and leave a review. Let us know how we're doing, what you think about the podcast. And we're getting pretty close to triple-digit five-star rating. So if you haven't yet on Apple Podcasts, go down, tap that five-star rating button. That would be a huge help. Also, make sure you subscribe to BaseballAmerica.com for all your prospect and amateur baseball coverage with daily MLB prospect reports keeping you up to date on what's been a, a record-setting rate of big league debuts so far this season. There's also the Baseball America podcast feed for the prospect pods, the scout series with Kyle Glazer, and the college pod with Teddy Cahill and Joe Healy. As for me, you can follow me on Twitter at Kyle Banduho, that's B-A-N-D-U-J-O, where I'll be updating my followers on upcoming episodes of this podcast series and my weekly sports movie podcast, Big Screen Sports. With that, let's talk to former big leaguer Cody Decker. Okay, on today's episode of From Phenom to the Farm, I am joined by Padres' 22nd round pick in 2009 out of UCLA, former big leaguer, current uh, YouTube content king, Cody Decker. Cody, thanks for joining me, man. Am I really a YouTube content king? I really haven't really released anything on YouTube all that much in the last while. Well, I think um, you think of baseball players where it's not the best sport of guys like doing a good job marketing themselves. So in terms of baseball players, yeah, I, w- I would think you're the content king. I don't know how many baseball players have a YouTube video that- that's over a million views. That's not something actually happening on the field. Well, that's a fair point. Uh, now, it, there's a reason why there's not a whole lot of people you see people, uh, producing their own content. Uh, Major League Baseball doesn't like it. Yeah, I mean, um, when we're recording right now, we just had to endure like a 48-hour news cycle of people complaining about a dude swinging 3-0 to hit a grand slam. So Major it's League Baseball, mind-boggling. We're still very behind the times, but we are here to talk about your career. Before we get going on it, though, uh, tell me about what you're doing now with your baseball softball nonprofit. Oh yeah, well I uh, currently I well I retired last July, uh, July of t- 2019 mid season. Uh, I retired because I had been in talks with Entercom about moving into the uh, radio sphere, along with a company in El Paso, Texas, a 501c3 nonprofit called the El Paso Border Youth Athletic Association, and the whole purpose of the organization is get as many kids 
um, underprivileged and and above into college through baseball and softball. So that that's the whole purpose of the organization, um, getting everybody to the next level through the sport of baseball and softball. And I'm really excited to do it. We've been updating our programming. Uh, I brought over my friends from the our facility in Los Angeles, uh, Bimo Elite Athletics. Uh, Joe Bimo and Brent Dean have come out to El Paso to join me in this, in uh, upgrading the baseball and how it's taught, how it's... Uh, how it's measured, and really, it's it's been an exciting um, experience, and we're having such great success getting guys to the next level right out the gate, uh, one year in, and it's just been fantastic. And especially lately, during in a world of COVID, the uh, the amount of progress we're making right now is 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 staggering, and it's exciting. Where can people check that out? How can they support it? Get involved, etc. Um, you could check out um, our website, uh, borderyouth uh, borderyouth.com. Uh, I'm sorry, let me get that actual website right. I don't want to mess that up. Yeah, I was right. Good. Yeah, you go to borderyouth.org to check it out. Um, it gives you all the information of what we have. We have a baseball facility over there called The Base in El Paso. You can follow it um, on all our social medias. That's you know Twitter and Instagram. And that is, uh, you can follow us on Twitter at The Base EP for El Paso. And uh, the same thing over on Instagram as well. Uh, pretty exciting what we're doing. Not to mention follow Bimo Elite Athletics and BEA underscore Texas. Um, with everything that's going on, we're uploading videos daily showing the progress of certain players. I mean, we're having guys that, you know, have never touched 75 miles per hour. And I got a video just sent to me of a, a 15-year-old kid from Juarez who is throwing 84 now. And he's the sky's the limit for this kid. Uh, really, really excited for what we're doing over there. Well, that's awesome. You're you're focused on getting high school guys to the next level. Let's go back to to your high school days. Let's let's mm-hmm. reach on back. Um, you're you're a guy. You have made your personality and a creative side a big part of your baseball career. Obviously, your post playing career. What kind of personality were you in high school? What kind of athlete were you in high school? Well, uh, in high school, I was you know I was everyone know, knew me as the baseball guy. I was the player. I was on varsity my freshman year. My sophomore year, I led the state of California in home runs. So at that point, everybody knew me as the baseball star at Santa Monica High School. But I was also in theater at the time. And our, our high school theater program in Santa Monica High School was part of the Santa Monica Civic Light Opera. So theater there was a huge deal. The arts at Santa Monica High School when I was there, we were number one ranked choir in the nation. We were the number one ranked marching band in the nation. We were the number one ranked... Um, uh, orchestra in the nation. Uh, so the arts at Santa Monica High School were through the roof at the time. I can't speak for it since I've left. I don't think I've stepped foot on campus since I left. But it was uh, theater there was a big deal. And um, all I did was play baseball and go to theater. I would often be in the plays and I would stay every night at school till 1 a.m., you know, prepping for whatever the show is. Um, starred in a few shows like uh, Noises Off. That was fun. Got two concussions doing that show. And then uh, starred as Professor Harold Hill in The Music Man. That was an absolute blast. I, I, I think I had more fun doing that in high school than I did doing anything else, and that included all the baseball. Um, it, was, it was exciting. It was great to have that counterbalance, you know, all the nonsensical macho aspects of working out and playing baseball and, and trying to be a star athlete to trying to be the theater star as well and musical theater. How many times in your playing career, like from high school to your last day in pro ball, did you hear something along the lines of from just anyone, 
how can you concentrate on baseball with all these other interests? Yeah, too many. Uh, it, it, it was it was pretty amazing. It, it makes me think that certain fans, and it wasn't a lot of fans, but it's certain fans. You know, you go over three one night with two walks, and you you get five messages saying, "Hey, maybe you should focus on baseball," as if the, Mike Trout has never gone over three before. Um, only time I ever really had encountered is when I played for one manager who really didn't like that I didn't just do baseball nonstop. I got to the field every day at noon. I, I left. This is back in. This is when I was playing professionally. I get to the field every day at noon, and I was always the last one to leave. So to be told that I needed to focus more on baseball is nonsensical. I if I had to go home and think about baseball for the rest of the night, I would lose my mind. Um, you know, my entire life has been baseball for thirty years. I think it. I mean, and we'll. I mean, we'll get into this down the road. But I think if you and in your professional career had come around like right now, when you see guys who have their own Twitch channels, on YouTube channels, things like that, it it might have been a, a lot of things might have been received a little differently. But you were kind of on the cutting edge of that. But as far as your, your high school career, obviously a, a notable baseball player. Uh, you know, you're a California guy. UCLA is an elite baseball school. It seems like an obvious choice for someone wanting to play college ball in your position. How did that come together? What was your recruitment like? Kind of what did you factor into uh, your college decision? Um, what factored in, and this is so funny you asked that question because I, I was talking to a kid today about the recruiting process and spoke to him for about 20 minutes about where he where he could potentially go to school. And I gave him parallels to my recruiting uh, process. And uh, it's just so funny you mentioned that because this is exactly how it went. My whole family was a USC family, every single one of them. And so I wanted to make my family proud and go play at USC. That was the goal. And I was being heavily recruited for by them. And they ended up uh, you know, making an offer to me. And I verbally said, absolutely, let's get this done. But they also knew I wanted to go to USC. Which was my mistake, I think, because the recruiting process, you know, as as ugly as college recruiting is now, it was awful back then. You know, everyone promised you the world. They strung you along. Uh, NCAA regulations, let's just say were not exactly paid attention to. There were more helpful suggestions than they were actual rules. Um, I played for Pat Murphy, uh, you know, the former head coach at Arizona State all the time. And I'd make fun of him all the time. Like, Murph, what the entire college baseball rule book has been invented because of you. I mean, he was managing you in the in pro ball because of that reason. Yeah. And he, 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 it's just the call. The recruiting process for me was uh, nauseating at best. Um, you know, I went on many official visits, you know, U of A, uh, ASU. UCLA, USC, LMU, and those were really the schools I was mostly looking at. I wanted to play in the at those schools. Uh, I loved the idea of UCLA and USC, but really USC is where I was mainly looking. I that was my sights were set on that. And as time kept going forward, they would kept coming to me with less money and less of a scholarship. And I don't know if you've ever seen what USC costs to go there. Uh, it's a private school, and it is not cheap. So one day they came to me saying, we just picked up this junior college catcher. We had to give him some scholarship money, so we're going to actually cut your scholarship that we're planning for you in half. To which I just said, well, that's a very big difference in price. That's ridiculous. And I remember UCLA came to me out of nowhere. I thought I was, I thought UCLA was gone, and all of a sudden they gave me a call saying, this is what we have available right now. We'll give you one quarter 
and you know after that we'll reassess and hopefully give you more and i found out how much that cost compared to the usc scholarship and so my thought was so i can go to an elite university like ucla my family will pay very little and it'll hurt usc sign me up let's go my whole i signed at ucla as a vindictive thing cuz all i wanted to do was destroy usc and it really, really worked out. I remember my freshman year, I started two games. I hit two home runs off of them um, against USC. And after that, USC started a tailspin. They ended up losing like 10 in a row, and they haven't been back to playoffs since. I'm not saying I'm responsible, but I am 100% responsible for USC's massive downfall. It's been a long, dark 15 years for USC. I think this past spring was the the most promising start to a season they've had in years, and then everything went away but you you head to UCLA what are your what are your expectations what are your goals for yourself heading into a top tier program like that heading into the Pac-10 you know getting to UCLA was daunting at first because it's so funny US UCLA at the time although a very prominent program had never won a college world series at the time and hadn't been to a college world series since 1997 so getting there, believe it or not, UCLA planning on making all these strides and going to the next level with Coach John Savage, who I absolutely adore. You know, at the time, UCLA baseball was kind of treated like the the unwanted child of the UCLA sports community at the time, because UCLA's own motto was champions made here over 100 championships won by UCLA athletics, not won by the baseball team. And it was amazing being at the ground floor of that that paradigm shift for UCLA baseball. Um, I remember that year we made it to regionals. Next year we go to super regionals. Next year we go to super regionals. And all of a sudden, we are on the map. And uh, I remember the year after I left, they went to the College World Series, to which made me realize that, yes, I was the cancer all along because they went to four of the next five College World Series. So, my bad, John. <laughs> well, when you get to campus, you assert yourself pretty early. Your freshman and sophomore year, you you know, you rake pretty much from the get-go. You lead the team in home runs as a sophomore. What's the, in, in your mind, what was the key to performing early and often? What made that adjustment smooth? Because, like, talent isn't always doesn't always equate into production i mean if you just mm-hmm. like for comparison's sake usc had matt mcclain turned down you know was a first round pick turned down usc really struggled as a freshman turned it on this spring before things shut down but what for you made it so you know you pretty much hit from the get-go i was always a guy that could hit and i was also a guy who played with a serious chip on his shoulder i just kind of innately had that um i remember my freshman year I knew I had I knew I was the power guy my freshman year. I knew I'm the guy you need in the batter's box. And I was frustrated because I wasn't getting very many at bats. But when they did play me, I seemed to always homer. So I ended up my finishing my freshman year with only like 63 at bats, but I hit five homers, hit over 300. And I remember my end of the year meeting, Coach Savage asked me, Hey, wh- what are your thoughts on the year? And I just blatantly said to him, I think I should have played more. And I think that took him aback a little bit. And he just looked at me and said, you're right. You should have. We're going to fix that this next year. And we're also up in your scholarship. By the way, that was an agreement I made with John Savage before I ever got to UCLA. That ne- after my first year, we'll, we'll 
will up your scholarship. Now, Coach Savage in no way, shape, or form was any un- under any obligation whatsoever to keep his promise. I will never forget that he did, and it took no pressing. He just said, I promised you more money. You're, get- you're getting a better scholarship next year. And I had that the rest of my time there. So I'll remember that for the rest of my life with Coach Savage. Um, you know, it, it was uh, it was because you've been around this. You see what as daunting and, and as ugly as the professional game can be. The college game is 10 times uglier. Uh, the business of college baseball can be very ugly. And it's also because you're dealing with very young people. You're dealing with very young and, quite frankly, fragile egos with young ball players. And so it's very interesting that, you know, Coach Savage uh, really held up to his end of the bargain. And I'll, I'll, forever, I'll forever be in debt to him for it. I'll say as someone who played D2 ball, every spring a, a few spots on our roster were taken up by D1 kickbacks. And a lot of times it was guys who had a promise broken or had scholarship money pulled. You know, we had, I'm not going to name names, but we had a guy who was was told to play through an injury and then got his scholarship pulled because he couldn't stay healthy. It's just a very, very ugly situation in college baseball sometimes. But it can be. It, it, yeah. It's in. It's just like football. It everywhere. is a business. Yeah. No, not everywhere. Some places are better than others, and um, some people are more genuine than others. But you know, college baseball is very much a business, and unfortunately, that business in the political game of college baseball really does bite a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, if if you don't win, if you're a coach and you don't win, you don't have a job, and that's mm-hmm. that's obviously going to be in the forefront of your mind. But, um, back, you know, back to your career, you know, you head into your junior year. Did you? How aware are you that it's you know that's draft eligible year before before you got going in the spring? Too aware, far too aware. Um, I was going to ask because junior too year aware. you struggle a little bit. Was it? Oh no, I didn't struggle. I didn't struggle a little bit. I struggled. It was a horrible year. And it wasn't just a bad year for me. It was a bad year for the entire team. We made it to we made it to the regionals. And I think we made it to the supers, but I don't know. It's all hazy at this point. That junior year at UCLA was the single worst year of my career, with the exception of maybe 2016. Um, that junior year, I remember being there. We were preseason ranked one. We had guys. These are the guys that made it to the big leagues that were on this starting lineup. Uh, you had me. You had Brandon Crawford. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of him, but I, he apparently kept playing. A lot less uh, hair. Back a lot less hair. Brandon Crawford. We had Jermaine Curtis who made it to the big leagues. We had Tyson Brummett who made it to the big leagues. Um, we had uh, Ryan Babineau, who at the time was kind of a blue chip catcher, who just unfortunately after he got drafted could not stay healthy. But he was he was someone highly sought after. We had a high round draft pick left-handed pitcher who got hurt during playing pro ball named Tim Murphy, who was a monster. We had an unbelievable team. And due to certain aspects behind the scenes between players and certain coaches, you know, the chemistry kind of got eroded. And everyone was so focused on what's next instead of what was right in front of us. And, I was one of those people, absolutely. I, I, you know, I was told what round I was going in uh, before the season started. I said that I was told I was going to go top four rounds. Just go do your thing. And I remember I had a bad weekend, and that bad one bad weekend. I started fine, and then that one bad weekend led to another bad weekend, and all of a sudden, 
you know, my hitting coach starts getting in my ear, well, we got to make some adjustments. And those adjustments weren't working for me. And then I had to make more adjustments. And all of a sudden, every couple of weeks, my swing's changing. And I'm pressing harder and harder and harder to the point where we're almost halfway through the season and I am just having an atrocious year. Luckily, towards the end, I started to pick it back up. And, you know, you look at a college season, it's a short season. It's 54 games. So in a, in a pro ball setting, you know, you had a bad first month and a half, you know, in middle of May that a lot of guys start to pick things up then. It happens. You don't want it to happen in college baseball because that sample size is so short. So next thing you know, I'm at the end of the year hitting 220 with seven home runs as opposed to the year before, 315 or 330 with 14. And it was just, I remember draft day came along and, I got a phone call from the Angels, and they asked me what it would take to sign me. We And I just said, what round? And they said, here's the amount of money we'll offer you. And I just said, don't bother. There's no point. I'd rather go back to fix, figure this out, go back my senior year, and pick it back up. And I look back at that junior year as significantly the best thing that ever happened to me. Well, you go back as a senior, and I mean, you do. You lead the you lead the Pac-10 in home runs. You hit 322. What is the what's the cause of the turnaround there? Because at that point, it's your last chance to. I mean, it, it you know it's your last chance playing college ball. Obviously, when you give it your best, but it is also your last chance to showcase yourself to pro teams. Because if you have another year like you did your junior year, you are you know you might not be drafted. You might be going to play any ball. I um I kind of changed my perspective on baseball. My junior year wasn't fun, and it wasn't fun for the whole team. It was a bad year. I think you can ask any coach on that staff, including Coach Savage, what what was wrong. And for some reason that season, everything was wrong with all of us, not just me. I mean, we all played underperformed, and we were not the best of teammates to each other the way we should have been. And I fall absolutely under that category as well. It was a tough time for, I think, the entire team. I think we put so much pressure on ourselves being preseason ranked one. Uh, We ended up putting together a decent season, but that was just because we were a very talented team that we kind of got away with certain aspects. But we all knew how poor we were playing. So as time just went forward, I think I... I remember they asked me if I wanted to play summer ball, and I, I had a great relationship with uh, Mankato Moondogs in the Northwoods League. And I remember I just said, "I don't." I just told Coach Savage, "I need to. I need to get away from baseball for a little bit." So I remember I that off season, I just trained, worked out a lot with our our the UCLA strength coach, and I remember all of a sudden I was I, for I took a summer job. All I did was I just bartended. I bartended and worked as a bouncer. And I remember the place I bartended and worked in as a bouncer, they had a Sunday league baseball team of, you know, 35 and up. And they had a spot open for a guy named Brian Johnson who was on the on the roster. And I'm like, I, I decided I needed to just get my mind off baseball. So I didn't pick up a bat. All I did was work out for a month after that season. And all of a sudden I was starting to think, you know, I do kind of miss going out and playing. So I think maybe it's time to get back get back to work so I got back in the cage took some swings and then I just said hey I'll, I'll play as Brian Johnson so I played in the LABL under the name Brian Johnson for about five weeks 
and had more fun playing in that stupid Sunday league game, league team than I had had playing in a long time. And it reminded me, these guys were all minimally talented uh, 35-year-old guys who weren't very good, but to see how much fun they had and me playing with them, all of a sudden I'm having a blast playing baseball. And it came to the point where every at-bat, I was just homering every single swing. I was playing every position. I had so much fun playing in these non-important baseball games. And it just reminded me how fun baseball actually is. I looked at my, I just kind of had a come to Jesus moment where I looked at the, looked in the mirror. I'm like, this is fun. Baseball's fun. Why am I treating this game like anything other than a game? Yes, it's hard work. Yes, there's business aspects. But if I'm not having fun, why am I doing it? And I remember I came in my senior year and it was a blast. Yeah, well, you you go into your senior year, you've got that mentality, but it, it's kind of thought to be incumbent on seniors or older players to to kind of mentor incoming freshmen, not only to be taking care of yourself at that point, you need to be passing the, the positives down onto the incoming class. I've While I've got you, I've got to ask about a couple members of that 2009 freshman class. You, yes. you have two more of the more touted incoming freshman pitchers to make it to campus probably that decade. One's a first-round pick. It turned down a lot of money to come to school. One has what, what some might call a difficult personality. What was your experience like as a senior on a team with, uh, with Bauer and Cole? Um, Garrett Cole. Now, here's, here's, I've, I've had some quotes in the past about Bauer that I think read worse than they actually sound. So I, I actually spoke with Bauer not too long ago and told him what a, what a competitor I think he is. Uh, and yes, there are times where, of course, I don't see eye to eye with Trevor Bauer. There, I, don't, I think there's a time where everybody doesn't see eye to eye with Trevor Bauer. That is very Trevor fair. Was, Trevor was very, very young. He was 17 years old. He left high school a year early. So to say that I didn't speak to him very much would be a fair understatement because he didn't play with us in the fall either. He didn't join the team until January. And if you've played college baseball, you know how important that fall is for a team's chemistry and how you know close-knit the group gets during that time. He joined us after that. And it wasn't a problem, but he was just young and he hadn't quite figured out who he was yet. Um, you could see right out the gate how unbelievably talented the kid was. You could see uh, just everything was there. He just hadn't put it all quite together yet, but it was it was there. Uh, Cole was ready-made from the get-go. Cole was just sitting there. All he wanted to do was strike everybody out. He wanted to tell everybody tell everybody that he was the best player in the world, and he wanted to go out there and prove it. And he would be as arrogant as possible when he would say it. I'll, I'll never forget it. I remember one of the first times I was around him. It was the day before August what 14th, the day before he had to make his final decision if he was going to sign with the Yankees or if he was going to come with us to UCLA. And he asked me, he's like, hey, do you think I'm going to be here tomorrow? And I'm like, no, if you're here tomorrow, I'm, I'm going to kill you. You're offered four million dollars. He's like, oh, no, but I can just come here and play here for three years, go first overall and sign for 10 million. And I, I remember I nearly had a stroke out of anger. I'm like, who does this kid think he is? And then he came in and did exactly that because he was just that good. <laughs> and I, mean, I love the only it. I think he only got like eight or nine million. So I don't think oh, he got sorry. the full ten. What a failure. Uh, I know. What a bum. What a bum. No, he's, he, uh, he, he won he the was, long he, game with the Yankees. 
He really did. He he was young. He too was also young. He was 18, brash, arrogant, but never did, never one time said he would do a thing that he didn't immediately go and do. Loved him as a teammate. Um, Bauer, you know, at the time, I didn't, I, I guess I didn't talk to him much. I think we had one disagreement on the field at Stanford. He gave up a hit to center with two outs, and I grabbed the ball. I'm like, hey, you got this. Don't worry about it. And he just said, like, give me the ball. And I, and I immediately nearly lost it on the field. I'm like, I'm going to have to beat up the freshman kid at the sunken diamond mid-game. This is what's going to happen. It would have been a great moment in Stanford history. <laughs> but no, you know, but, you know, as I've gotten to know Trevor a little bit more over the years, and, you know, he's got a good heart. He's a hard worker. He's an unbelievable pitcher. Um, you know, I, he's got that reputation of being difficult, but I don't think it's, I think it's, uh, I think he's misunderstood. I think he's got... I think he definitely has a bit of a chip on his shoulder. I think he's next level talented. And I think he's, um, you know, he's he's looking to do things outside the realm that is considered, you know, with me and my YouTube thing, he's got his momentum thing. He's trying to do some other content. He has other interests. And I think that's commendable. I agree. He is uh, he's unique, but he is, he is also one of the few other baseball players who is who is trying to to transcend the game a little bit in that regard. But mm-hmm. much like your your former teammates, Garrett Cole, Trevor Bauer, you also get drafted after your senior year, just a little bit later. Uh, but once you guys don't get picked for regionals, you're basically waiting for a couple weeks until the draft. How long do those weeks feel? What is, what is pre-draft like when you're a senior, you've played your last college game? I treated it a little differently than I think most did. I knew I would get drafted. I had a lot of meetings with a lot of teams. And I kind of just decided not I'm not going to pay as much attention to the draft. It's going to happen. Everyone told me, like, listen, <laughs> I remember the the scout from the Marlins. Great guy sat me down and just said, I wish you did this last year. Uh, and I just stared at him I'm like, yeah, me, me, too. He's like, well, here's the thing. Even if we drafted you in the second round, um, you're not getting more than a thousand dollars. It's a it's kind of a policy like no one's going to give you more than a thousand dollars in a signing bonus. You have no bargaining chip. If you did this last year, you'd be in the top five rounds and you'd be making a lot of money. I said, listen, I get it. I know that I'm well aware. He's like, so you'll sign. I'm like, of course, I'll sign. If somebody drafts me, I'm going to go play baseball. No question about it. And I, I guess that was what the conversation was with everybody. Hey, do you want to play? Do you want to you want to play the next level? I said, yeah, draft me and I'll come play for you. Um, and I remember when the draft came along, I knew that I was falling in the draft because of my senior. My, I was a senior, and I had now been looked at like, listen, I'm 5'11", 225 pounds, right, right-handed, right uh, played mostly first base at UCLA, a uh, little bit of left field, a little bit of third, caught a couple of games, but they're just, this is, I'm going to fall in the draft. That's the way it is. It doesn't matter how I hit. And there's going to be a lot of people who are going to say, well, He's a metal bat hitter, despite the fact that there is literally no evidence to that ever that I was a met quote unquote metal bat hitter. So I I remember when I got the phone call that the Padres drafted me in the twenty second round. I had stopped watching the round after the draft after ten rounds. I just said okay. I was in the gym at UCLA. I was mid squat. Got a phone call, and I he just said hey this is from the San Diego Padres. We just drafted you, and I said great. Click. I was mid. I was. I was busy. <laughs> and then the, had to get the uh, gains. I had. Yeah. Yeah, bro. I got to set new PRs, man. I was mid deadlift. Can't what interrupt was that. The, uh, what was the after tax signing bonus? 
uh, $643.28. I remember the my, my clubby, uh, Zach Nelson, he's the head clubby of the, uh, uh, for the minor league side for the San Diego Padres. I remember he came over to me and handed me, literally handed me an envelope that had a check in it. He's like, hey, signing bonus, don't spend it all in one place. And I remember I opened it up and he just looked at it and looked at me. He's like, uh, it's going to be kind of hard for you though, huh? So... You get that you get that signing bonus. That's not it. That's not quite like the ringing endorsement. Oh, this club's invested a lot of money in you, and you've seen you you were self aware of how the scouts viewed you. Mm-hmm. What did what was your expectations for yourself? What did you think you could do in pro ball? Did you think that anything was guaranteed past your stint in the AZL? Did you think you were going to make a real run at it? I thought I was going to make a real run at it. I remember my scout thought that. I remember, but I remember. I knew what the Padres thought of me going in was not much. I knew they had no expectations. They had no idea what they had, nor did I do I think they even cared. Because I remember I sat there talking to my scout, and he just said, listen, they're going to say you don't have a position. They're going to say this. They're going to say that. I've watched you play. I fought to get you drafted in the spot. They wanted to draft this guy out of this D2, out of somewhere else. I wanted... You, you were my pick. I said, I appreciate that. Thank you. He's like, I think you can make it to the big leagues in three, four years. I said, great. I say, I'll do it in three. We were both wrong. It took seven, but it didn't matter. I did make it. I, he, uh, in, it, I was always on the cusp. Uh, that first year, I, I absolutely dominated every, where I played. Um, you know, and I just sat there kind of waiting, go, thinking, you know, I'm 22 years old. You guys should just literally move me to high A and let me and let me play. Just throw me in the fire and let me show you what I can do. Um, after the season was over, um, I, I had broken multiple AZL records. Um, it was a great season. They moved me up to low A for to finish out the year. They told me I wasn't going to play. The team's been together all year, but you know we want you to just go there, join them, get acclimated because you're going to be playing with them next year in high A. And I just said, wow. That was a drastic change. I went from nowhere on their list to no, we're we're pushing you. You need to you need to get used to being around these guys. Did your seven game stint in Fort Wayne give you a false impression about what the minor league baseball experience would be like? No, I had a pretty good idea what the minor league baseball experience was going to be like. Uh, that Fort Wayne team was absurd. They won hundred games, and I remember joining them, and they were just a bunch of great guys that I'll, a lot of which I had already played against and with. Um. In you know summer ball and college, a couple of which even in you know club ball in high school. So we were all aware of each other. So it was it was immediate fix, uh, immediate fit, no problem at all. And you know the travel was just you know, I don't think I need to tell you about the travel in the Midwest League, but it is not fun. Yeah, heard heard some stories. Uh, Fort Wayne has a nice nice stadium situation out there. Though. Oh Although, yes, they yeah. do an, yeah. an incredible stadium in Fort Wayne. Yeah. Um, but you, you know, your first full season in 2010, you, I mean, you head out to high A, they, they give, they do give you that bump and you justify that you, you pretty much tear up high A, but as far as the, the adjustment, kind of the off field adjustment, how did you, you know, in that year and those first few years, how did you stretch money? I got very lucky in Lake Elsinore because it's at least close to where I grew up in Los Angeles. So Lake Elsinore was a town that had host families. So in Lake Elsinore, I got beyond lucky. 
So I stayed with somebody who was actually Gary Adams. Gary Adams, in case you don't know, is the legendary UCLA baseball coach. I've known him for a long time. He recruited me before John Savage was going was at UCLA. So Gary's uh, Skip's cousin was actually a host family over there in Lake Elsinore. So I stay. I lived with her the whole season. It was an amazing setup for me. Uh, family came to a lot of games. So that first year, I, as broke as I was, and as much as I had no choice but to dip into you know credit card debt, I was pretty lucky that I was able to stretch a dollar a little better than most that first full season. After you get that first full season under your belt and you have a good year and you've seen that, okay, well, they, they drafted you to 22nd round pick and they gave you basically a wad of cash and that's about it. After they've had the confidence to jump you to high A, you you know you prove them right. You have a good year. What did you think your your ticket was to the big leagues? What did you think your ceiling was at that point? Um, I there was at the time a front office that really I really felt was very much behind me. This was the Kevin Towers front office. Uh, Grady Fuson was in the front office. He was a he was big on me, and as was uh, Randy Smith, uh, who is to this day one of my favorite people I've ever got to play for in baseball. Randy Smith uh, ended up becoming the uh, head of player development the next year. I kind of, things kind of shifted that next year because that next year we brought in a new front office, brand new front office. That's when uh, Jed Hoyer came in, uh, who is now, of course, the GM of the Cubs. Uh, when he came in, it was like I, I, I didn't exist anymore again. I, I got knocked down a couple of rungs. They brought in, of course, some of their players that they had over in Boston. They brought in uh, uh, Casey Kelly, and they brought in uh, Anthony Rizzo. So now I'm going to go to A, but I'm going to be stuck in A because Anthony Rizzo is going to be in A because he's their guy. And obviously, Anthony Rizzo is an incredible ball player. So I started that year in San Antonio in double A think, thinking, okay, let's just play my game and show them that I'm the right guy for them. And I started beyond hot um, that year in uh, San Antonio. And San Antonio, in case you don't know, is notorious for being the worst hitters park in all of minor league baseball. It's 310 feet down the left field line, and it is the farthest 310 feet you'll ever see in your life. It is a terrible place to hit in. I am I am from say I live in San Antonio. So you know, um, and, yeah, you know the and, wolf. and the Texas League in general is not considered. It's it's not. It's certainly not the Cal League. No, no, the the Texas League is not a great place to hit. There are parks that are better than others, but San Antonio definitely at the bottom of the rung when it comes to places to hit as an offensive player. I I ended up hitting uh, in April though. I I was just on fire. I ended up hitting. 11 home runs in April and I was feeling great. My body was in good shape. Ball was coming off the back good and I was hitting through. And if, if you've ever been to San Antonio, it's like hitting in gravy. The, just the wind blows in. The wind is thick and humid at all times. And I was having no trouble hitting, hitting serious home runs. And then one day, early May, um, I hit a ground ball to the third base, run down the line. First baseman's foot kind of slipped on the bag, covered the bag a little bit. I tripped on his foot. I tried to get my bearings. Ankle got planted in the ground, and I ended up getting a, a, a really bad grade three ankle sprain. Um, and it was very bad to the point where I honestly should have gotten surgery. I missed three months. Uh, I was determined to get back on the field. 
And I remember when Randy Smith came over to me and told me you're going back to the team when I was in Arizona for three months. I came back to the team. My ankle, i he knew my ankle was probably at 25%. It couldn't bend at all. But I came back. They gave me a couple of weeks to kind of get my bearings and hit a little bit. Unfortunately, my my average dropped because of it. But they just said, don't worry about it. Just get ready for playoffs. And uh, by the time playoffs came around, I was pretty much on time and feeling good and ended up uh, getting um, named the playoff MVP and, uh, you know, ended, ended the year with 15 home runs with only like 130 at bats. So I felt and had a great playoff. So I was I was happy with what I accomplished based on the situation. But I'd be lying if I said that was a year that, man, if I didn't get hurt, what could have been? Because I, I mean, I had 10 home runs, 11 home runs the first month. From that point, though, you're, you're a high minors player for the rest of your career. You're either in double A AA or triple A. You start spending extended time in cities, which is it's, it's probably not what you dreamed about spending, you know, having long stints in, in San Antonio or Tucson or El Paso. But, you know, you get over 250 games with El Paso, you know, but you seem to have embraced a fun aspect of minor league life and the places you've played. I know you have, you know, a very a special place in your heart for El Paso, especially your nonprofits there. But what makes a minor league baseball city a great place to play or vice versa? I think it's a I think it's an energy thing. It's it's kind of hard to put your your finger on it. Um, I'd be lying. And I, I hate that I'm saying that I'd be lying if I said I liked San Antonio all that much. It's there's something about it. You play it. You're playing there's at no the offense wolf. taken. <laughs> OK, thank you. Because San Antonio, you're playing at the wolf. It's in the middle of nowhere. It's a terrible and rundown stadium. No one goes to the games. It's just it, it is it was the worst stadium in the dub, in double A, let alone triple A where what it is now. So I did not enjoy my time. I enjoyed who I played with. I enjoyed who I played for. You know, my second year in double A, uh, that next year after that 2012 uh, that was 2012, I played for John Gibbons who most recent job was bench coach for the Royals. And before that, he was the manager of the Blue Jays for years. So getting the chance to play for someone like John Gib- Gibbons was uh, an incredible experience for me. Um, but yeah, uh, playing in a place like Tucson, I ended up falling in love with Tucson. Triple A Stadium, the stadium wasn't the best. We barely had a fan base, but the fan base we did have loved us and made me love them because they were there every night for us. The next year, we uh, in 2014, when we get, get, went to El Paso, at the time, El Paso had this completely unearned reputation because it was next to Juarez, and Juarez at the time, was there was a lot of dangerous stuff going on in Juarez. And we didn't know what to think. I remember getting, the, I remember the team was named the Chihuahuas, and people were mad about that. And I remember we got there, and I, I kept saying, if, if the fans embrace it, this is going to be amazing. And we got there opening night, the place was packed, and it was rowdy, and it was unbelievable. And I just said, this place is the best. Um, I played well there. They they loved me, and I loved them right back. I, I would stay after games and sign autographs for an hour. I would talk to anybody who wanted me to talk to them before the games. I, I made it kind of my mission to... When I was a kid going to Dodger games, all I wanted to do was like talk to a player. Didn't care who it was. Just wanted to talk to a player. Um, and 
you know, I got very lucky that I remember when I was a little kid, um, Eric Karos, who was one of my favorite players, chatted with me next to the dugout for like 10 minutes. And I'll never forget that, how that made me feel. I'm not putting myself to the level that Eric Harris was. He was, you know, he hit hundreds of home runs in the major leagues. He was a rookie of the year, played for 15 years. But I just remember what that meant to me. So I wanted to hopefully one day give a kid that same feeling, if at all possible. Do you think how you approach that as far as interacting with fans and making yourself a presence in the cities you played in, did that ease any frustration of, I mean, I'm sure you didn't want to spend 250 games in El Paso before your big league call. You obviously want to be in the big leagues. That's why you played baseball. Did, did how you went about that ease frustration at all? Yeah, it made me, you know, because especially when I was in El Paso, you know, I'm still on my initial rookie contract. I'm still not making a paycheck that even had a comma in it. I am I am putting out more money than I take in because in case, you know, I don't think I need to tell you, but in case your listeners don't know, roughly at this time, I'm in the fifth year of my minor league contract, sixth year of my minor league contract. I'm making roughly $975 every two weeks. I have to pay $300 worth of clubhouse dues every month and I had to pay rent that was six or seven hundred dollars a month so and occasionally I had to eat so to say the least I was making less money than I had to put out to literally live I I told somebody recently because this is true my first year in in Tucson I couldn't afford to live anywhere I had to live in my car uh in Kino Stadium parking lot for two weeks um that's that was how I had I had no choice because there were no options. Um, that's just that's kind of how it goes. But I will say playing in El Paso for those fans, as dark as that my career was financially and how much it was you know, wreaking havoc on my personal life. Every day I came to that ballpark, it made me feel like every minute was worth it. Every struggle was worth it. Every mishap was worth it because look at the joy that it's bringing these fans well something else you did in El Paso something that I I didn't get to watch you play but this is something that brought me joy personally and brought me joy again today when I revisited it uh you probably told the story a million times but could you just walk me through on Jeff's ears oh yes I can who wouldn't want to be walked through that? All right, so in case you don't know this, Jeff Francoeur, major league player at this point for nine years. He was a star. He all-star, had over 100 home runs. Uh, he was on the cover of Sports Illustrated one time, and it even referred to him as the natural. Um, he was looking for a job. He ended up signing a minor league deal with the Padres, and I got told by Pat Murphy. He's like, hey, he's coming. Um, just got a phone with him. Nice guy. Early read, Cody, but I think we can do the deaf guy prank to him. And I pause. I'm like, we can't do the deaf guy prank to him. So this was Pat Murphy's idea. Not exactly. It was more so that we had done it two other times. We have played. To less effect? Well, not to less effect, but, well, yes, to less effect. We had done this prank two other times, and this time we decided to really shoot for the moon and do it to a guy who... Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. 
Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Never expected, and it was perfect. We got everybody on board. Jorge Reyes uh, offered himself to be the guy because he just wanted to kind of keep his head down and do his work. And it came to the point where... It was all about the undersell. We had to make it that it was just the most normal thing in the world. He just came up to Jeff. Murph laid down the groundwork perfectly. We mapped it out. He goes up to him and says, hey, competitive team. We'll get you back to the big leagues where you belong. Pat him on the show. Oh, by the way, we do have a deaf pitcher. I just wanted to let you know in case you, know, in case you weren't aware of that. And he walked away. And he and the first thing Jeff said to me as I'm meeting him, he's like, "Hey, how's it going?" He's like, "Hey, man, I hear you're kind of like this social butterfly on this team." I said, "Yeah, I guess so. Yeah." He's like, "Well, tell me about him." Oh, well, we got um, you know, this guy over here. We got this guy, Jorge, um, great guy. He he's he's actually hearing impaired. He's like, "Yeah, I heard we got a deaf guy." He's like, "Yeah, yeah." He's uh, he's like, "It's amazing that he's able to accomplish that." How do they? How does he like? How do you give him signs like anybody else? You know, just when when we say things to him, you have to just over enunciate a little bit. He's like, oh, man, okay, good to know, good to know. Uh, and then it came to the point where Jeff would do something daily in front of Jorge, uh, completely unaware that Jorge can hear every word that he's saying. And he would, like, he would pantomime things. He would, like, do pitching motions. Like, hey, yesterday, what happened? And he would do, like, a pitch and then mimic the ball going against the wall. It was the weirdest thing, but watching him do this was hilarious. It came to the point where we forgot the prank was even happening. We because we we, we got to me Murph sat down. We're like we got to finish how to finish the prank. And we're like yeah, we'll get there. A month goes by and I forgot completely this was still happening. And the reason I found out and realized it was still happening was because we were playing in Tacoma against the Mariners AAA affiliate. Jorge comes in with bases loaded, nobody out in a one run game, and he strikes out the side. And we go crazy. Go in the dugout. We're all throwing equipment in excitement, high fives, all that. And Jeff comes in, slams his glove at Jorge's feet, slaps him on the leg, throws thumbs up, and over enunciates and screams, Great job! Way to go, buddy! I had to run into the clubhouse because I thought I was going to have a heart attack. I was laughing so hard, but it was that thing where I couldn't breathe. I was just, it, it was just barely anything was getting out of me. And I go inside and my pitching coach is already there rolling on the ground, literally laughing. And after he finally got over, he just stood up. I was like, this has to end. You have to tell him this can't go on anymore. Uh, so I, me and Murph really sat down the next day. We tried to figure out how to tell him. And it came to the point where we decided uh, I said, I want to make a documentary about this, get everybody's stories, and how we'll break it to him is we'll show him the documentary. And Murph said, oh, well, we had another idea that we really thought about, but we couldn't figure out how to film it, or and we realized there might be some legal implications. We wanted we wanted Jorge to pretend that he got hit in the head with a, foul, with a ball during batting practice the next day, and we wanted to all gather around, and we wanted to talk to him, and we wanted him to hear. And we, we wanted Jeff to think that it was a miracle. That uh, would have been and, incredible. 
we were really close, but uh, to pulling the trigger on this, but we wanted to get an ambulance involved. We're like, well, okay, there might be some legality involved with this. And then we started talking about it more. And then finally, I think I just came came to the realization where I just put a stop to it. Like Murph, no, he isn't that stupid. And he just started laughing. He's like, "You're right. I think we might be jumping the shark if we do that." I'm like, yeah, it's gonna end the months of hard work we've put in. We can't go too far. We have to keep it just at the edge. Um, so I, I, I recorded a documentary. I got everybody's stories, and I edited it all together, and we put it up on the screen. Murph said, "Hey, we got this video sent to us by Major League Baseball. Everybody has to watch it. Um, you guys will have questions after the fact." So we sat there and. Everybody knew it was coming. Everybody, except for Frenchie. Set up cameras everywhere, and we showed him the movie, and he lost it. He couldn't believe it. Afterwards, he's like, wow, like that is the greatest prank of all time. You guys are the best. Next night, he bought us all steaks, and he was just so amazed. Like, I can't believe you guys did that. It's amazing. It's the greatest prank of all time. He was the best sport in the world. Granted, <laughs> granted, he, I think he got a little less in, enthused about it when it went viral. But at the time, he was really on board with it. But Jeff Frenchie is just one of the Jeff Francoeur. He's just one of the greatest guys you could ever meet. Um, I learned a lot uh, during that time playing with Jeff Francoeur. Well, you can. Everyone can still find that video. It is on YouTube. Just search on Jeff's ears, and you will. It is just. It's just so so special. But. Um, you know, once back back to the the actual playing part of baseball. Mm-hmm. Once you get past you know two hundred games in AAA, three hundred games in AAA, do you start coming to the ballpark every day thinking like, okay, today's the day I get the call? When do you start hearing like Crash Davis comparisons, or when do you start wondering if it's ever coming? Um, I got I start getting Crash Davis uh, comparisons, man early in my career. I think my second year at double A, I think it was uh, 2012 is when I started getting that. So I go back to start the year in double A, I get moved to triple A and at the end of the year, I get sent back to double A and I hit uh, 29 home runs between the two places, end up having a good year. I feel like I got robbed of a lot of at bats. I sat for the first month of the season because they had some prospects that needed to play. And, and now we have a new, another new front office. So now I'm in my, you know, my fourth year, but I'm in my third front office so it's like, I'm like, okay, I need it. Now I have to make these guys like me. It was like every year I had a new front office and I had to start from scratch and making our front office know who I am and believe that I can play. And every time I got them on board with me, they got fired and we had a new front office. I I really picked the worst couple of years to play for the San Diego Padres, to be quite honest. During my time, we had five GMs, three owners, um, and you know I just wasn't getting a whole lot of opportunity. Um, which which is unfortunate, but I, I mean I don't have a single negative thing to say about the Padres. I I loved being a Padre. I wanted to go back many times, it just you know never came to fruition. Um, but yeah, the Crash Davis comparison, you know, me getting to the big leagues only really amplified the Crash Davis uh, thing because I just like Crash Davis, I had my twenty days in the show. Well, then walk me through that. Walk me through you know what's getting the call like, and then what you know your your twenty days in the show. Well, um, I remember, man, that the year before, I thought I should have been called up in 2012. Um, my manager, John Gibbons, called me in the office and said, listen, Deck, I'm sorry. I think you should have gotten a shot, but, you know, go home and stay ready just in case something happens. And then I remember the next year, uh, I spent the whole year in AAA. I only got 300 at-bats, which was frustrating, but I still hit 20 homers, and and I remember my, you know, had the front office said, listen, 
As of now, we don't know if we're going to make a move, but if we do, just stay ready for the next couple days because this guy's a little banged up, so you might get the call. And I remember I, I got passed over by our double-A first baseman. They called him up instead of me, and I remember I called the front office and asked for my release, and they said no. <laughs> it was... Uh, Ah, God, it was it was a very weird time. And then the next year in 2014, um, they told my manager I wasn't getting called up after telling him a month earlier that I was. You know, we just got AJ Preller and he wasn't interested in calling me up at the time. So I I was said, wow, I just, you know, again, I only had 450 at bats and but hit, you know, 30 homers. What do I have to do? And that I going to that last year, I just kind of stopped paying attention I just said listen I'm just gonna have fun and play my game and then when Murph got called uh, became the manager of the big league team I thought well maybe he'll fight for it and after time went on and it wasn't happening I just said well if that's not gonna do it nothing's gonna do it I guess I should just get ready for a free agency and see what happens uh we get the playoffs uh, we get knocked out of playoffs, and I remember I wrote a long thing, and Sam uh, Ganey was the head of player development at the time. It was his first year. He's roughly the same age as me, and I remember I sent him a text um, just saying how much I appreciated uh, him that year and how much I appreciated the organization, and uh, he's going to kill it at the job, and good luck, and um, I really had nothing. just wish you guys all the best. And I got a phone call from my landed in LAX the next day. I was, you know, sad. Didn't want my time. I figured I was even thinking maybe my career's over. You know, I think free agency is going to come along and people are going to see my numbers. Um, you know, I hold the San Diego Padres minor league home run record. I think people are going to see that and go, well, there must be something wrong with them. Let's not touch them. I'm like, I think I've, I'm just thinking my career's over. And I remember I get a phone call from Sam Ganey, and I think he was just going to say thank you for uh, the, the text I sent him. And he just said, listen, I know there are other guys in the organization you're closer to, but I just want you to know that text meant a lot to me. And uh, I think you're at baggage claim right now. I said, yeah. He said, great. We need you to get your bags and get on a flight. The team needs you in Arizona. And I just paused for a second. I just said, I'm sorry, what? You're going to the big leagues. And I just said, I, I first pleaded with him a quick second. I said, listen, you know I've done a lot of pranks. If this is a prank, it's a very good one. But I just want you to know it might push me over the edge. <laughs> and he just laughed. He said, no, this is real. You've been called up to the big leagues. You're joining the team in Arizona. And my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, picked me up at the airport. And she got out of the car. And I, I had tears in my eyes. And she just came out of the car. And I just told her I was going to the big leagues. And it was we both lost it. Uh, I got to go home, tell my parents, and uh, got on a flight and joined the team. Um, wasn't a whole; it, it was a great experience. I I didn't get a whole lot of opportunity. I thought I was going to play a little bit. I kind of only got one start, uh, and the rest were all pinch hit appearances. And I'd never really pinch hit before, so you know it didn't go as good as I hoped. But it was an amazing experience, and I'm glad I got an opportunity to say that I at least got to the big leagues. What's the one thing about being in the big leagues that surprised you that you weren't ready for? I don't think there was anything I wasn't ready for. I think I that particular team was a slightly interesting time. You know, Bud Black was fired mid-season. It was AJ Preller's first full season. They brought in a lot of superstars that they thought were going to jumpstart the organization and it ended up being the exact opposite. I got up there and it was the most poisonous uh clubhouse I'd ever been in, in my life. 
I have never seen anything like it before or since. Uh, unfortunately, and it wasn't for lack of talent. That team had all the talent in the world. It was more, I, I, I've never seen a team that actively hated each other quite like that team did. Um, so I walked into, it was like walking into, in the clubhouse, it was like walking directly on hot coals. That's, that's not ideal. Yeah, it was, it was not, it wasn't good. It was, it was tough. It was, at all times, it was tense. Guys were at each other's throats nonstop. It was, it was an ugly clubhouse to be a part of, which is unfortunate. I was really looking forward to getting there. And, uh, you know, I know the next year the team was way different and, and since then, but, you know, I think it was just I, the, the, wor- the worst thing, the worst thing that ever happened in my career was just, I think I had horrible timing at all times. Played for the Padres during the worst years. I ended up getting called up to, you know, one of the worst Padre teams. I think it was just, I, m- I missed my time. That's all. Well, the you hit free agency, and what's the you know priority as a guy in his late twenties? You you've got that little bit of big league time, a ton of AAA time. You know what what is the you kind of have like a have power bat will travel to the next few years of your career. I'd assume the number one goal is to get back to the big leagues, but you know what is at each time you kind of find yourself out there in free agency what are you looking for in a team or in a city or in an opportunity i was looking for a team that i i, I the goal i had i had an option basically of three teams I, I had more options but the three teams that made the most prominent offers the padres were still in the mix but they hadn't made an offer yet and i think i honestly thought you know I think AJ Preller wasn't very interested in bringing me back, and that's perfectly fine. I, I I wanted to go back, but I also thought it was time for me to kind of move on to the next thing. Um, and the Royals were the first team that called me. Um, the second team, the Cubs and the Dodgers. I grew up a Dodger fan. Uh, hearing hearing the talking to the Dodgers was, I mean, this is where I honestly wanted to go. But the team I really really wanted to play for my whole life was the Chicago Cubs. I always thought the Cubs were the coolest team in baseball. I don't know what it was that made me want to be a Cub. And But everything I, I spoke to the Royals about, they had a clear-cut vision of what they wanted me to be and what they wanted me to do. And all I kept asking the Cubs is, what's my role? And they said, well, you'll get here, we'll, we'll see, and we'll do this. I'm like, yeah, but the Royals seem to have my role ready to go. What, like, what is my role with you? And he's like, trust me, this is the place you want to be. And you know what? Looking back, I probably should have signed with the Cubs. I just, after a long deliberation, I ended up signing with the Royals. And and it, it wouldn't say it's the wrong decision. I loved, loved being there. The only thing that was unfortunate was I had a great spring training. I was kind of notified that I made the team. And then they changed their mind. <laughs> I flew with the team to Kansas City. I uh, I remember they I I got that was the last day of spring training. We had a big league game against the uh, against the Diamondbacks. Everyone knew where they were going. The last person they hadn't spoken to was me, and I stayed in the clubhouse after the game for an hour and a half. I finally got called in the office, and they said, "We're sorry, this one hurts. We thought you were making the team, but we're not going to make a move on the forty man. So you're going to go to Omaha. You're going to do your thing there. You'll be back up before you know it." I appreciated that. Went to Omaha and started great, except there was a lot of, they they weren't playing me every day, which I was confused about. 
I said, what's the deal? He said, well, we have this prospect here. He's got to play. I said, I, I, I made the big league team. And then you guys ended up changing your mind. How am I not playing every day? And they said, yeah, we know. Don't worry. It'll work itself out. And they came to the point where it wasn't working itself out. And they called me in the office and they said, listen, we may have oversold what we could do for you. So we're going to try and trade you. And they traded me to Colorado, went over to the Albuquerque, uh, had a good start, then kind of started to struggle a little bit, had about 45 at-bats there, um, started to kind of come out of it. And then uh, Daniel Descalso got healthy. They called me in the office. My manager told me, listen, here's the unfortunate thing. We kind of rented you. We we rented you because we weren't. Sh- we had nothing but high-end prospects here at AAA. We didn't want to start any of their clocks. So if somebody else got hurt, we were going to call you up. But now that Daniel's back, it's sending down Ben Paulson. We're letting you go. And I just stared. I said, you've got to be kidding me. I, this, is, you've, this has got to be a joke. And he said, I'm sorry, no. And I just said, wow, I've been here for two weeks. How do you grapple with two months worth of you're almost there conversations? Like, how do you even keep going after that? It was hard. I will say that 2016 season was tough, but I, I sat there thinking, listen, I know I'm off to a tough start, but like I'm going, I'm not playing. Every, I hadn't been playing every day. I had five home runs and like 60 at bats. I'm, I'm doing fine, but you know, a good th- a three for three game will move me back up to hitting 290. So what it's going to be perfectly fine. I just figured, all right, you know what? I'll head home and I'll just get picked up somewhere else tomorrow. I'll be fine. Unfortunately, teams aren't looking for players in May on May 3rd. It's not exactly an ideal time to get released. So I ended up spending a, over a month at home just waiting for a team to call. Stayed ready. Um, and then finally the Red Sox called and said, we have a double-A spot. Would you be willing to go back to double-A? And I just said, listen, I, I can't get back to the big leagues from my couch. So yes, I'll, I'll gladly go to double-A. And... I remember after that month and a half off getting there, I was a little rusty, but I was still hitting for power and I was still doing fine. But I remember walking away from that season going, I played terrible. I underperformed. This was on me. And I remember I had so much anxiety every time I came to the batter's box when I was over in Portland. And it was just, I dreaded getting in the box because I didn't feel like me. I was playing constantly scared that I was going to get fired again. It was a, it was a hell of a gut punch, and it, it was it was it made me question my entire existence as a baseball player. I'm like, maybe maybe I'm not that good. Maybe I can't handle this. Um, and, it, and you know, getting to that point where you're second guessing yourself at that age, it's 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 tough. Were you still able to do the things that you like to do, interacting with fans and in? that same kind of relationship you had with fans in El Paso and Tucson and stuff, were you still able to do that? Or was, was just all the fun sapped out of the minor league experience? No, no. I I actually tried to turn that up more to kind of make up for it. I I tried to make sure I was, uh, you know, the clubhouse guy. I tried to make sure I put things together for him. I made sure our bus trips were the funnest trips we could have in the Eastern league. I, I just, I, I played it all up, but you know, some of it was trying to mask how I was, personally having a lot of turmoil um I didn't let any of my teammates know about this obviously but I was doing my very best but I was personally struggling terribly during this time um but I don't know if my teammates would have known that I think the only one that might have known that was my manager I came to his office and I just said listen I'm 
terrified of getting fired. And a front office guy came into town the next day and he said, you're not going anywhere. You can go over your next hundred. What you've done in this clubhouse with these guys, like you're not going anywhere. And I just said, thank you. You, I, you, I know this is ridiculous, but that means more to me than you think. Um, it was just, it's tough. It was tough to grapple with at the time, but looking back at it, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Um, in pro ball, it was that junior year of college, but in pro ball. And I left that season upset with myself, knowing that I did not perform. I did not play the way I could have played. I had 300 bats hit 19 home runs, but I, I knew I failed. And that's where my head was at at the time. Um, and then, you know, so much so that I, I was, I was really thinking maybe I'm, maybe I'm done at that exact moment. Um, and luckily I was wrong. Well, you had something else going on baseball wise and, and kind of in hindsight now, what do your experiences playing for team Israel mean to you? Cause I'm, if I'm, if I remember correctly, the, the world baseball classic that you, you guys were trying to qualify for was right around that time. Correct. Yes, it was. And at the time, I wasn't interested in playing. I, th- I thought I needed to do the same thing I did my junior year of college. I'm like, I need to kind of get away from baseball a little bit. And I played for Team Israel the first time in 2012, and I loved it, but we we got knocked out of a double elimination tournament in a tournament we only lost one game in to a team we already beat. And it never sat well with me to where I was like, I'm, I don't think I want to do it again. And the manager called me, kind of begged me to play, and really convinced me that he needed me on the team. He needed me in the lineup. So I, so I did it. And I remember I talked to my wife about it, and she thought it, she thought it would be the best thing for me. Go do it and have fun. And I did. And that qualifier in Brooklyn was the most fun I had had in a year. We had a blast, that team together. We beat up on all the teams we played against. We had so much fun in that qualifier. And when we won that game, that was in the qualifier. When we won that game, that was the most excited I had ever been on a baseball field at that time. And that was a real special moment for all of us, especially the guys that were together the first time in 2012 who felt kind of cheated out of the WBC the first go around. Um, so this was this was that was a special moment over there in Brooklyn. Uh, come next spring training, I signed with the Brewers. Well aware that I'm with a new team, so maybe I shouldn't go play in the WBC. Spoke to the Brewers about it, and they can they uh, helped convince me along with my, the WBC manager. He very much said, "No, no, need you in the lineup. You're in my there every day. Need you. Can't cannot do this without you." I said, "Okay, I'll come and I'll come and do it." But the, I got to make sure the Brewers are cool with it, and the Brewers were not only cool with it, they were encouraging me to go do it. They said, no, absolutely do this because, you know, you have an Asian clause, you have an Asian clause in your contract that if a team from Asia comes along uh, and makes an offer, we'll make money off it, we'll send you to Asia. And I said, okay, let's do it. I was really excited that the Brewers were on board. And I go and play in the WBC and I don't get the at-bats that I was promised, so that was a problem. I come back from the WBC tournament, which the tournament went great. We beat up on all these teams. Um, but I'm sitting here sitting, thinking, wow, I was told that I, I was told that I needed to be in the lineup and I'm not in the lineup while spring training's going with an organization that I'm currently new to. I need If I'm not going to play, I need to go back. And they just said, no, no, you can't go. You got to stay. So 
me personally, I was having a big issue in that WBC. Uh, had a bad falling out with my manager um, because I told him, "Listen, you're gonna. This is gonna really harm my career being here. I need to go." And uh, I was right. I went back over to the Brewers after the tournament. Uh, they let me go, saying, "Well, it's because we haven't got a chance to see you." Uh, you know, you went and played for Team Israel, and uh, we didn't want you to do that. And I just said, well, that's not true. You yourself told me to do it. You encouraged me to do it. He's like, yeah, but you didn't get the at-bats over there, so, you know, we're going to just move on. And I was furious. I had, I had the exact opposite reaction of my previous releasing. This one filled me with, pardon the expression, but with a ton of piss and vinegar. Um, signed with the Mets about five days later, and I just... Went over, they only had a spot in double A. Fine, don't care. I went to the double A last year, I'll do it again. And I played great over in Binghamton, New York. Um, they moved me up to triple A, back to the PCL, where I was, which is home to me. I'd already spent seven seasons in the PCL and uh, loved my time in Vegas. Didn't play very much, unfortunately, but any chance I did, I played well. Um, only had roughly about 150 at-bats, 200 at-bats, so now I'm getting less at-bats now, but I had another 15 home runs. It was a, a solid year. I really liked the Mets organization. Um, I really did. Uh, but that 2017 year was just kind of more or less... I had fun, of course, but it was just more frustration going, man, what is going on? Why won't people just let me do my do my thing? Aside from the tough on-field experience with Team Israel, obviously that that didn't kind of pan out to how you wanted with that WBC. Is there, as a player and as a, as a player of Jewish heritage, is there any sort of off-field responsibility you felt or anything that you took you wanted to accomplish off the field in representing Team Israel to maybe high school versions of yourself, Jewish kids growing up playing baseball? It was exciting to see how many ki- how many kids really uh, responded to us. Um, how many of them really took what we were doing to heart and and really feeling you, you could see, especially when we went to Israel, you could see the excitement in their eyes about this. Like, oh my goodness, you're a bunch of Jewish baseball players. We could do the same thing someday too. And that was that was extraordinarily special. And more than even that, it was the group of guys, my teammates on Team Israel. I would have done anything for any one of them. Um, they were, it was the best grouping of players I've played with probably my entire career. I loved, loved every single guy on that team. And I would go and play with anyone on the team anytime, anytime they were asked. I absolutely love those guys. I was lucky to have teammates like that. I mean, it was something that brought. Jewish baseball culture to the forefront like it is for someone like me like I had never heard about you know there being a team Israel team Israel being a place where major league players play um you know just just in in my forefront or how I viewed baseball In, in your experience as a a Jewish guy who played baseball at a very high level, you know, how much of an issue is anti-Semitism in baseball? What work needs to be done? That's a, that's a broad, very broad question. But, you know, as someone who went through 10 years of pro ball, what's kind of, how do you view that? Well, uh, let's just say that there is a lot of work to be done, to say the least. I remember getting back to the Brewers and a coach who I didn't really know very well, just, you know, trying to make 
snide comments about me playing for Team Israel. He's like, oh, you're back from Team Jew, huh? And I remember staring at him like, I don't know you very well. So throwing that one around, I'd really, I'd really calm that down. You know, uh, it, it, you know, you saw it last week with the whole Ryan Christensen thing, the bench coach for the A's. I've never heard a single negative thing about Brian Christensen. I've, I've, by all accounts, he's actually a great guy. But he made an absurd mistake, and at least he took responsibility for it. But seeing the A's response and then Major League Baseball's complete utter lack of response to the entire situation, thus completely normalizing anti-Semitism in Major League Baseball, absolutely sickened me. And I'm blown away that there were no repercussions. And people were saying, oh, you're trying to get this guy canceled. No, I'm not. I'm asking for a conversation that desperately needs to be had. Because if we're just going to let this slide, then where is the line? Because it's seemingly there isn't one. That, um, yeah, it, it was a it was a tough situation by by all accounts. I have one more Team Israel thing that's a, a little bit more of a brighter note. Who now has Mensch on the bench? Where is he? I do. I've always had him. <laughs> You've always had him. He's, is he just I've chilling never in your house? not had him. Uh, he is currently in my closet in El Paso, Texas. Uh, yes, I definitely 100%. The Mensch on the bench thing was entirely my idea. Uh, in case no one knows, I saw it on Shark Tank. Uh, I realized going into the qualifier, we needed one last thing for us to win. And I'm like, we need some sort of, we need our version of Joe Boo from Major League. So I went to my club. I'm like, I need you to get me a mensch on the bench. And he's like, what? I said, just Google it. I need it. I also need uh, Manischewitz and Gelt because we need to make offerings to him. Next day, it was there in my locker. We put it in the, we put it in the dugout. We played w- every day with it, and it just became the thing during the qualifier to the point where the men's on the bench people called me and said, we would love to give you a life-size one. I said, well, obviously need that. Uh, so they gave me that, and it joined us in Arizona. Then it came with us over to Korea. It came with us to Japan. Uh, I got it was the only people got all their things like certified by Major League Baseball, like uh, their jerseys, their cleats, you know, authenticated through Major League Baseball's authentication process. The only thing I got authenticated was the mench on the bench. That's incredible. I feel like I feel like at the next WBC, Tim is- Team Israel is going to come come asking to see if mench on the bench can be loaded out. You might have a, a decision They can't afford him. Can't, can't afford mench on the bench? Can't afford him. No, Fair enough. He, he'll be taking a lot of requests, but he's going to be watching with me. Fair enough. Well... You um you play out your age thirty season with the Mets. You hit free agency again. You know you're you're heading into your thirty one season. Um, unlike I think a lot of guys who reach kind of like quote unquote baseball lifer status, at least you know getting on the other side of thirty in pro ball, which is no easy feat. You you had at least something of a plan for after baseball. You were doing your content. You were doing your YouTube. You clearly you've transitioned to a career. When do you, though, start actually thinking about ending your playing days? Because I feel like even if you've got a great plan afterwards, I can't imagine it's an easy decision to actually like hang up the cleats. Incredibly difficult decision. I ended up playing two more seasons with the Arizona Diamondbacks organization. Uh, an absolute amazing class act organization. Loved every second with them. And a team that, an organization that was brutally honest about what my role was going to be. And I could appreciate that. They basically, even going into my final season, they even said, listen, we know you can play and we know you can play in the big leagues. It's going to take a miracle. Because uh, if, if, we're, if, we're if we're rolling, you know, we'll, for the spot that you would be fitting into, we're probably going to make a trade for that spot. 
Um, and if we're not and we're struggling, if we have the choice between calling you up or the 21-year-old prospect, we're giving the 21-year-old prospect the spot. And I, as terrible as that sounds, being told that, I appreciated that honesty more than you could ever imagine. It really was refreshing. And it put me in a position to where I'm like, you know what? This is a chance to really learn other aspects of the game. Like I got called up to pinch it uh, and I pinch it a few times. and I struggled with that. I'm going to be putting some pinch hit situations. I'm going to, I'm going to really focus on being the best pinch hitter in minor league baseball. And I was, um, I like my, my last couple of years against lefties have not been as good as they should be. And then my advanced stats, the next two years against lefties were through the roof. Um, and every start I played, I had great games and I really felt good about where I was at all while doing my best to help everyone around me. And I was really, really proud of those last two seasons. When I was still uh, earlier on, when I was with the Padres, I got an offer you know, to do one of their pregame shows. Um, I turned it down because I'm like, no, I'm, I just got to the big leagues. I, 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 can, I can play. I want to keep playing until they take it away from me. And that was always something I always said. I'm like, I'm going to keep going until they take it away from me. It was, wasn't until that second year with the Diamondbacks that I'm like, listen, maybe it's time at this point, I'm 32. There's only, I've gotten as far as anyone's going to let me get to. I'm not getting enough at bats for them to sell me to Japan, um, which was kind of my goal those last few years, like play well enough to, so they can sell me to Japan or Korea. They physically just weren't capable of doing it because they, I wasn't playing enough. They, they couldn't justify it. And I totally understand that. So, I started, things started to shift and I started getting more phone calls for certain jobs and I started hearing them out a little bit more. Um, I had been offered several managers jobs. Uh, I had been offered coaching jobs. I offered one coordinator job. I kept thinking I wasn't really interested unless I had to, to stopping my minor league career to then restart my minor league career. There was something about it that just made me think I wasn't ready to go that route. Maybe eventually, but not yet. Um, and then I, I got a few phone calls uh, from Intercom, and they were very, very interested in getting there. The president of uh, sport for Intercom is a man named Mike D. He used to be the president of the San Diego Padres, and he had been always looking for ways to work together after I was done playing. And he called me and said, I think I finally have something for you. And this was all coinciding at the exact same time I started talking to the El Paso Border Youth Athletic Association. And one, both of them seemed like, wow, I could do both of these things. Yeah, what I can do in El Paso for the athletic, uh, El Paso Athletic, uh, I'm sorry, Border Youth Athletic Association will keep me connected to baseball in my favorite thing, which is development and teaching of baseball and, uh, you know, getting guys to the next level to reaching new goals. And I, I can, you know, give these guys a roadmap of, what I've experienced that they can take advantage of. And then all while, you know, staying in media and doing the radio show with my wife, uh, do we have a show called swings and misses on uh, radio.com sports five days a week. Check it out. You won't regret it. Uh, it's just, it, and I, after having a long conversation with my wife, you know, intercom flew me out to Boston. I write about the diamondbacks approved for me to take a day off and fly to Boston where you know we went to a Celtics game with the president of the company and discussed what we wanted to do for radio. And it was exciting. They were excited. And next thing you know, I had an off day. We flew me to Los Angeles. We did some more test shows. 
went back to my team and I had an offer on the table. And that's when I called the Border Youth and said, listen, I, I'm ready to go. Let's do this. So we mapped out a whole plan uh, about retirement. And I remember that final call I made to the Diamondbacks saying, guys, this next weekend, um, I'm going to hang them up. Uh, I think it's time to move, time for me to move on. And one front office guy tried very hard to talk me out of it. And I just said, listen, is there any way you're calling me up this season? And he said, probably not. I said, then it's, I think I've reached the point. I think I'm ready to hang him up. And so I went into that series uh, knowing that this was going to be my final, my final time uh, playing a professional baseball game. How hard was that? Hard. I, I, it was very hard. I remember I got, I, speaking to my wife, uh, you know, she walked me through it, speaking with my family. They were all very, very, very supportive. But it was that final call with the Diamondbacks because I said, once I make this call, it's real. That's it. And uh, I remember getting off that phone. It was a weight was lifted off my shoulders, but it was scary extraordinarily scary because this is all I've known for 11 years. And baseball is not typically the sport. You, you usually don't know the hourglass is empty until it's already happened. You don't, you don't usually watch it. Like you think, you know, college guys, like I knew my last game would be my senior year of college. I just didn't know when we were going to get eliminated. You were, were actively watching that countdown. So that, that seems like it would have been, you know, very tough to deal with, but can you walk me through that last at bat? It's so funny. At that point, I completely forgot. Like I was so into the game. Um, we were we were down. We were up. I remember it was my first start in a while, and I knew this was my last game. And I remember I went over three to start the game with three strikeouts, just going furious with myself. I'm like, these guys aren't that good. You're, I know your timing's off, but you, you come on. And I remember I get there in the eighth inning, and we're down by one. And I'm up with bases loaded and two outs. And I hit a single to the left that scored the tying run. And I got the first base. And then we ended up scoring the go-ahead run. And I remember sitting there going in the outfield in the ninth saying, and we have our closer, Jimmy Scherfian, who is a sure-handed closer, going, you know what? I finished with an RBI single. Game time. It's a good way to go out. I'm, 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 I'm proud of it. Pr- good career. And then we gave up two runs. And at that moment, I was furious. I was furious that we gave up two runs um, to the point where I forgot about everything that I was go- happening to me at all. And I just looked at the lineup. I'm like, okay, we're down by two. It's the ninth inning. Or the uh, ninth inning. Forget it. I'm going to get up there. I'm hitting, I'm hitting third this next inning. I'm going to hit a two-run home run. That's it. And it wasn't. I wasn't saying that. I just to think like that's how I'm going out. I completely forgot it was my last game. I wanted to win the game. That's all I wanted to do. I just wanted to win. And I remember I got up there. The first guy gets on. And I remember I get on the, at the plate. And I know it's their closer. And this guy throws 97 to 100. I faced him before. And I'm thinking, I was like, get on time to his fastball. If he throws me three sliders, he deserved to get me out. I don't care. Get on time to this guy's fastball. And the first pitch was a fastball. And I fouled it right back. And I screamed at myself. I'm like, you idiot. Get on time to the fastball. And... Next pitch, threw me another fastball, I think at like 97 to 98. I was on time. Hammered it to left center and took off. And a part of me thought about, sit back and watch this, because I knew I got it right off the bat. But unfortunately, um, I just don't have any swag at all. 
So every time I ever thought about looking at a home run, something would click in the back of my head going, no, no, no. If it doesn't go out, you need to be on second base. Go, go, go. So I took off. And after I hit first base, you know, by the time you get to first base, you know the ball's gone. I was so charged up that I don't think I slowed down. I just kept at the same speed rounding the bases. And my team was all at home plate going crazy. And I threw my helmet. I remember I just, we all hugged for so long. One guy after another, because my team knew this was my last at bat. We were going crazy. It was unbelievable. And I remember it didn't hit me until I got back in the dugout. Uh, Johnny Gomes was in there. He was our roving hitting uh, pitching, I'm uh, sorry, a roving outfield coordinator. And I remember uh, sitting there, taking off my elbow pad, taking off my batting gloves, putting in my helmet. And as I'm putting the helmet back in the helmet rack, that's when it kind of all hit me going, wow, this is the last time I'm doing this. And I looked over to Johnny's just staring at me very close to me. I'm just, Johnny, I'm retiring. And he just smiled. He's like, I know. This is awesome. And uh, as I, I didn't realize it, the whole team was getting together. Guys were sprinting in from the dugout to celebrate. And as I was trying to go into the t- tunnel, the crowd was still going wild. My whole team picked me up and threw me back out on the field for a curtain call. And I was just getting a huge ovation. And that meant a lot to me because I, I knew I earned it. Because um, the audience, the crowd didn't know I was retiring. They had no idea I was retiring. Um, they were just giving me the curtain call for the home run. And it was emotional. It was the most emotional night to this day of my life. Um, I remember getting in the clubhouse. You know, guy players gave me speeches, um, telling me what I meant to them. And I got to give my short, really short speech because I started to tear up. And I'm like, I got to end this before this before I embarrass myself, guys. And it was uh, it was a magical night, and I was lucky to have teammates on that team, like you know guys like Travis Snyder, who I've played with with three other organizations, who I just had, I think the highest of possible. Um, Mark Zepchinski, Jepti- uh, who was on the team, uh, he, he, just another guy I played with in the past. Like I had some guys I just loved on that team, um, and I was so um, proud that I got to share that moment with them. How much easier did having those those eight big league games under your belt, how how much did, did having those help the decision to walk away? I don't know. I don't really think it, because the, the goal was always to get back. You know, the goal was to show people that I can go there and, and, and play and, you know, I can do my thing in the big leagues. That was always the goal. So a part of me, I think, will always go like, you know, I if I just got that opportunity. But I don't regret a single thing. I... I you know the whole the reason why I was still playing was to get back to the big leagues. Um, unfortunately, I didn't get that chance, but I did get to the big leagues. And I always have this text message from Alonzo Powell, who was our assistant hitting coach, and it says you were number eighteen thousand three hundred and forty-five in the history of Major League Baseball. That's how many people have ever made an appearance in Major League Baseball. Congratulations, you were one of the eighteen thousandth greatest people, players to ever play this game. He's like, that's a bigger accomplishment than you'll ever know. And I've really taken that to heart, and that that means a lot to me. Last thing, and then I'll I'll let you get out of here. What would you, if you could go back, talk to yourself coming out as a senior, or talk to guys in your draft position, senior signs, you know, someone just entering pro ball, not as a a highly drafted pick or someone with a lot of investment behind them. How would you advise uh, someone in your similar situation to make the most of their time 
and minor league baseball and go about their business? I think it depends on the player. It depends on the person and the personality. But the only advice I could ever give anybody is enjoy this. You have to enjoy this because this will end. And if you don't enjoy it now, that's what you'll regret most. Um, you know, I had ups and downs, but there wasn't a moment that I did not enjoy my time there. Even even in my lowest moments, there was so many high, so many positive things to take away. And I, I, I don't look back at my career with an ounce of regret. I had more fun than anyone else on that field at all times. And I think that's why certain cities gravitated to me because they saw that I was having fun. And if you're having, if I'm having, you're having fun watching me play having a blast, then it's just fun for everybody. Enjoy it because baseball does eventually end. And I'm just happy. I'm lucky it was on my terms. Well, Cody, as a, as a fan, um, it was, it was a joy to watch you from afar from Twitter, appreciate the game the way you did these past 10 years and, and enjoy your time out there. You've been an excellent content creator. I will be forever grateful for you just pranking the just pranking Jeff Francoeur to death. Uh, it is a that that video will always be one of my favorites. Uh, tell the folks again where they can follow your nonprofit and then where they can catch your your radio show and your podcast Swinging and Misses. Uh, yeah, you can check out uh, Swings and Misses. Uh, follow us up one at Twitter on Twitter at Swings and Misses. Uh, you can uh, subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your favorite podcast. That's Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, and of course the Radio.com app. Uh, we do stream live five days a week, 10 a.m. Pacific, uh, live on the radio.com app. But we also stream live on YouTube and, of course, now on Twitch. So please check out that. Join the conversation. Um, we are having an absolute blast on this show. And I, I obviously can't say too much, but the future is very, very bright. I'm very excited where we're going with this. And uh, check it out. You won't regret it. Also, if you have the availability at all, please uh, donate to our nonprofit, the El Paso Border Youth Athletic Association, uh, or you know, share it with your friends to someone who might be interested in, in helping out. Or if you're ever around the Western Texas area, please come out and train with us at our facility, the base. We're we're really really excited for what we're doing. We're helping get guys to the next level because you know, it's all about experiencing the joy of baseball you know I'm very lucky that I got to enjoy this game and I want people to enjoy it as well while having the roadmap to circumvent the difficulties and the struggles that I did to let them know that you know it's you're not alone in any struggles that you go through in this game let's let's help you get to the next level and it's it's been a true true joy to do well, Cody, thanks so much for sharing your career story and coming on from Fiend at the Farm. I really appreciate no, it. No, thank you so much for having me. Of course, have a good one. And that's it for today's episode of From Phenom to the Farm. Another big thanks to Cody Decker for taking the time laying out his story, one of my favorite interviews of this series so far. If you enjoyed it and you haven't yet, subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Rate review if you're on Apple Podcasts. Also make sure you're a subscriber to BaseballAmerica.com. New content every day over there. And we will catch you on Tuesday, September 22nd with a longtime big leader as our guest. Thanks for listening. <laughs>